You are listening to the Boss Business of Surgery Series Podcast, Episode 37. Are you working with a bad leader? Today, I'm talking with Dr. Kenneth Cho, an interventional radiologist I've known for a long time, and we talk about leadership and when to recognize you have a bad leader and what to do about it. For more information, also look at BossSurgery.com. Welcome, surgeons. Residency didn't teach us everything we needed to learn to be a successful surgeon. While we spent our time caring for patients and learning how to operate, we didn't learn how to advocate for ourselves or navigate our career. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Vertries. I'm a general surgeon, certified coach, and founder of the Boss Business of Surgery series. This is where you'll learn those lessons not taught in residency. I have a very special guest. Now, Dr. Kenneth Cho and I, we go way, way way back. I'm a little bit hesitant actually to say how far back that we go. Uh, So Dr. Cho is an interventional radiologist. And I first met him at Walter Reed when I was a fourth year medical student. And I decided to do a fourth year IR rotation, which was by far one of the best fourth year rotations that I had because he let me do so much. It was the very first time that I felt like a responsible adult because he let me do lots of things and he believed in me. And so that was my, one of my early experiences. And I've really honestly taken that lesson to my current students now, and he does not know this, um, but I quote him all the time because I remember it was closing a port site and he said, I don't care how you do it. Just make sure it's perfect. (laughs) (laughs) And that, that quote has stuck with me and I I share it with my um, students all the time. So Dr. Cho, I know you and I both have a history in the military, of course, you having 25 years in the army and you know, reaching the leadership of you know, the head of interventional radiology and then the head of radiology at the Walter Reed and managing that rather enormous transition from the um, Walter Reed Army Medical Center to Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. I know that you learned a lot in the military itself, but I think that a lot of your lessons you're going to talk to us today are about that transition to civilian life and all the changes that you've seen um, and the lessons that you've learned. So we're really excited to hear about how you can help us um, tell when we're under a bad leader. So Dr. Cho, tell me a little bit about yourself. Well, uh, you know, Amy, it's great to see you again. And uh, um, it's amazing that over a long time, and I won't say how long, that you have not changed a bit. Um, but uh, I'm also uh, really pleased to see how you're, you know, reaching out to uh, so many providers on uh, important topics, uh, you know, and not just how to be a good, good physician, but you know how to live a good physician life. And so that's fantastic. And thank you so much for, for talking to me. Um, I think that it's helpful for me to sort of um, give a little bit of my own history in terms of of leadership credentials, if you will. Uh, Because I think that part of the problem for a lot of physicians is that, especially in the civilian world and not to criticize, but um, there's very little attention, if any, given to the topic of leadership. Uh, you know, from medical school to internship residency, you do your, you know, residency or even fellowship, and then you practice as a physician, you know, practicing your craft, and then suddenly you find yourself in a leadership position. For me, I started my leadership training even as an ROTC cadet back in the mid-80s, and, you know, the Army gives you leadership training, you know, leadership 101, you know, freshman year of college, and then, uh, giving you small leadership positions. You're a, you know, you're a team leader, you know, um, 
you know, uh, helping to train one or two younger cadets, then a squad leader, you know, 10 cadets, and then a platoon leader, 30 cadets, and then a company commander, you know, more, you know, 60 or 100 cadets. And then, you know, you learn how to, uh, how to manage and how to lead a group of college students. And then, you know, you move forward, uh, I, you go to medical school, and I was honored uh, to go to the Uniformed Services University, where they actually give additional, you know, leadership training and experience uh, as, as a medical student, you know, a, a lieutenant. I did my internship, and then instead of going straight to residency, I, I was two years as a brigade surgeon with the 101st Airborne Division. And I was the uh, officer in charge of a troop medical clinic. So I oversaw, you know, a handful of staff, some medics, and some physicians assistants, and also was in charge of managing the, the readiness of an infantry brigade task force. So about 7,500 soldiers who had to be ready to go to war at, at any moment and having to take care of the medical readiness of that unit. Then, you know, I do my residency. Uh, then I went four years as a diagnostic radiologist, uh, and I was a section chief, chief of ultrasound. And in the military, uh, as a section head, you're actually administratively overseeing your technologists, which is a big difference in the civilian sector. Um, and I'll get to that in a minute. But and then I did my fellowship, then I went to Walter Reed, where I was chief of IR for several years. And then, um, as you said, in my last year and a half or two years at Walter Reed, before we merged with the Bethesda Naval Hospital, I was the chair of radiology, where I was in charge of 299 soldiers, civilians, and contractors. And you know, as you go up in rank, the military talks about what type of leadership you have to exhibit. So when you're a second lieutenant and you're a platoon leader, you basically give orders. And that's why people follow you is because you have the uniform code of military justice behind you and you just tell people what to do and they have to do it or you can you can give them an article 15 or throw them in the brig. As you move forward and you're managing larger, more complex groups, you learn other skills to be a leader. And by the time you're a colonel, you know, you're using far less ordering people than influencing people and really motivating people to do the right thing, to help them do their mission. And when I took over as a chair of radiology at Walter Reed, I remember my first day, it was a Monday. Um, I walked in Friday night, I left, I wasn't the chair and Monday morning I walked in and I was the chair and I met with all of the section heads, the chief techs, the chief, you know, the physician heads of the sections. And I walked in and it was a very tumultuous time. There was a lot of uncertainty. People were very, very stressed. And I walked in and I said, you know, my job is to give you the resources you need to do your job. And our job is to take care of our patients, you know, until we merge with Bethesda. And right there, you know, I was able to start building a relationship of trust with all of those individuals. And then when I moved to the civilian sector, I retired in 2012, I went to another organization and um, I learned a lot about how leadership is different and how organizations are structured differently in the civilian side uh, than on the military side. Um, about 
six years into that process, I realized that I needed to get more education. And so I started doing an online MBA, uh, which I just finished, actually. It took me four years. Um, and um, I learned a lot more about the, the, not just the financial side, but also the management side and the leadership side um, in the civilian sector. Before you and, go on, there's, I wanted to point out one thing, and then and I also want to ask you a question. I thought your, your point, especially about how our leadership skills have to evolve as we change our, I guess, our relationship in the organization, how we start off telling people what to do, but then, you know, because we have the power and influence behind us, but then you realize that that actually changes, you, you stop telling people what to do more and you have to start influencing them, which is where I think some of the more nuanced and important skills come into as we raise in ranks. Cause you know, what, what got you here doesn't get you there kind of scenario. Um, and I think that you really um, articulated that well. The other question I have is that what were you looking for when you were getting an MBA and, you know, what made you seek it out? Well, what I was looking for, well, a couple of things. One is that in the military, um, if you've got, if you've got colonel's rank on your shoulders, there's, that opens certain doors for you. And that comes with a certain understanding from both your subordinates and your superiors of what you've done, where you've been, and what your skills are. You don't get to that rank without having certain abilities, certain skills, and certain experience. When you retire and go to the civilian side, that disappears. And so, um, A, I felt that an MBA might help in terms of giving me the credentials that I need to advance further in administrative roles. The other thing is that a big part of what drives civilian healthcare is money. And frankly, a lot of physicians, most physicians maybe, don't understand the financial side of things. And so I felt that if I was going to be of more use and benefit to my institution, wherever that institution might be, that if I had a deeper, more detailed, more granular understanding of, of financial issues, that I would be able to be more helpful. So if I could speak the, the bean counters language, if you will, that way I could help merge my focus on clinical care, but also understanding the perspective and being able to speak the language of the people who are trying to keep us fiscally afloat. So, you know, because I feel that that's a valuable part that doctors sometimes say, well, you know what, I don't care about the money. I care about the patient. That's a little bit unrealistic, you know, because if the hospital goes under, I can't take care of anyone. So I think that, you know, my hope was that enabled, if I were to be able to merge my passion and clinical knowledge with also what do the bean counters care about? What do we need to do to be fiscally responsible and even, you know, uh, fiscally really advance things, then that would be a win-win situation for the organization. And I think that physicians who have training in both, you know, uh, clinical leadership and finance could be really, really beneficial to the long-term success of the organization. That's a great example of, of how an MBA can help you. Really, very compelling. 
So now take us a little bit through some of the problems that you see. And, you know, because a lot of times I think people don't recognize that they're under a bad leader. And so what are some of the signs that you would help us understand if you're under a bad leader? Having had some great leaders um, in my career and having had some not great leaders, to put it uh, diplomatically. For me personally, I could tell that my leader was not good when you start having that feeling, you know, and I hate to put pin a lot on feelings, but you know what? Feelings are a symptom, a sign that something's not right. Uh, much like pain is a symptom that there's a problem with your body. Okay. Uh, and so when I'm starting to feel stress in my job, okay, um, it may be that I'm overworked, but it also may be that I'm not being appreciated, that I'm not being listened to, that I'm not trusting my leader. You know, if my leader is saying something, I'm like, uh, I don't know if I can take that to the bank. You know, what that's telling me is that there are problems, there could be problems with with the leadership, you know, if morale in your um, area, in your organization, in your section, in your team is low, what that tells you is that maybe I should be looking at my leadership and saying, hey, you know what, what are they doing or not doing that's causing a problem? Because I think that um, if you talk to your leader and you come away from that conversation feeling down, feeling deflated, feeling not understood, that that's a problem with your leader, okay? And, you know, I think that we're too quick to say, oh, you know, that's just how it is, you know? No, it's it, that's not how it should be. What that tells you is that your leader is not, or listening, or doesn't respect you, or doesn't have integrity, you know, isn't being honest. These are all characteristics of good leaders. So a good leader should be able to, um, you should be able to trust them. And trust is the linchpin. That's the hallmark. That's the, that's the key component of good leadership is if I'm going to follow you, I have to trust you. And if I'm going to trust you, there are certain things I have to believe about you. I have to believe that you actually have my best interests at heart. I have to believe that you're being honest with me. I have to believe that you have the actual skills and ability to accomplish what you're promising me or what you're telling me. You know, I have to believe that you understand my position. And so um, those, if you're not feeling trust, I think that you go back and say, why don't I trust this person? And there are, in fact, and I learned in my, in my MBA, there are certain tools that one can use, um, certain questionnaires that you can use to, um, to gauge the team or groups or organizations trust in their leader. Something called, there's one called the LMX seven, the leader membership exchange seven survey. And, you can give that to people. They answer questions, and depending on your score, that tells how much your the organization trusts that leader. So I actually gave that survey to my current team, and fortunately, uh, I found that they had a very high level of trust. 
I did that survey, I've done that survey and haven't always had that result. So if you're finding you're not trusting your leaders or you're feeling burnt out or you're feeling disrespected, then what you can do is you can go back and you can analyze that and say, what is it that my leader's doing or what attitude are they having that makes me feel like I can't trust them? Are they disrespecting me? Are they not? Do they have bad listening skills and they're not actually listening to me? You know, do I think they're you do they have ulterior motives? Are they trying to get themselves ahead? Are they taking advantage of their situation of their position? You know, um, uh, and, and, and those kind of things. And then once you do that, you can actually talk to people about that. And I think your um, simple solution is, is such a big key because I think a lot of times we don't focus on emotions because this idea of being emotional and, you know, we're really not taught the language of emotions, which the more nuanced we are, I think, in our identifying how we're feeling is going to lead us to the thought that's the problem. You know, just like you mentioned, and, you know, we used to joke like with surgeons, it's like happy, happy, sad, or hungry. I mean, that's, that's my emotions. <laughs> But really, obviously, it doesn't help you at all. But if you have things like, you know, I feel a little mistrust, I feel resentment, I feel suspicious, you know, all of these, the more we articulate these emotions, I think the more we're going to get to the thought that will let us question this a little bit more, like, why am I feeling a little distrustful of this situation? You know, why am I feeling a little resentful? And really honing in on the exact emotion that you're having and asking specific questions, I think is exactly what you're getting at, which I think is really, really helpful for us to start identifying where the problem is. Because a lot of times you're like, I don't know, I just feel bad. is not actually really helpful or I'm feeling burned out. Also not helpful. I think really, you know, getting down to the details of it are going to give you the specifics for your specific circumstance. And that's the key to figuring out what's going on. That's, that's a really great point. And I really like your choice of words, Amy. So for example, if you feel suspicion, then what are they doing that's making you suspicious? Well, if, for example, you're observing that your leader has, say, administrative time on a Friday afternoon, like every Friday afternoon, and something pops up on their Facebook, like, you know, oh, <laughs> I'm doing X, that makes you suspicious of, are they really doing what they're supposed to be doing? Or if there's inequity in, say, a bonus situation, mm -hmm. or there's inequity in a vacation situation, you're, you know, if you're suspicious, if you're, if you're not trusting them and you're suspicious, of your leader's behavior, then you can figure out why you feel that way. And then you can articulate that to people. And maybe they don't realize that this is what's happening and they can correct that behavior. If you're feeling resentful, same situation. If you're feeling unappreciated, then what are they doing or not doing? Are they, could they just be more encouraging? You know, and and there are things that we can do as leaders. So but you have to do them consciously. I try very hard in my team and I'm I'm a section head of a small section. OK, but I try very hard to articulate frequently and authentically 
and honestly that I appreciate my people. And I do everything I can to respect them and to make them feel like they're valued members of my team, which they are. I value their opinion. I listen to them and I try to behave. You know, if they make a suggestion, I try to take those suggestions whenever possible because that shows them that, well, A, they're actually giving good suggestions and B, that I, you know, it's not that I'm the doctor, I know all and I, you know, I'm going to do the Well, they know their jobs very well. And so I respect them and I build them up and I help them develop as people and I help them feel ownership as part of the organization. And, you know, and, and that I believe, you know, and things are hard in healthcare today. And if you're not letting people know that they're appreciated, they're going to burn out, you know, they're not feeling valued. They're going to, you know, quote, burn out. And as you said, burnout as a general term is not as helpful. You know, people like to talk about burnout, but you know what you have to, as you said, find what is a specific root cause and can that be addressed? And it sounds like, you know, what we were talking about for ourselves, identifying how we feel about our leaders is that we as leaders can then ask, like, I want them to feel this way. And so we can just ask them, are you feeling appreciated? And, you know, then they can actually offer us the solution to help them as well. So it seems like it kind of goes both ways in that respect. Absolutely. It's helpful to look in the system of how people are managing this idea of burnout, which again is a big umbrella of different things. And you had a great point of when to identify when a system is actually not helping improve burnout. And it had to do with the focus. Can you tell us more about that? Sure, sure. So uh, even in the literature, if you if you Google, you know, physician burnout, um, you'll find a lot of focus that's actually on the the provider who is feeling burned out. And and what it'll say is that, oh, you know, you're working too hard, you need to take breaks, you need to take up yoga, you need to try meditation, and all of these things. And they don't really address a lot of the fundamental problem, which is how is that person being treated? You know, what is the leadership structure? And, you know, having been a victim of, quote, burnout, you know, and and having administration say, well, you need to go see a, a counselor and talk to someone and talk to somebody. And I say, this is a situation. And they say, well, you know, and I, I knew exactly why I was feeling burned out. They said, well, you're not actually burned out. Your burnout is, you know, when they talk about burnout is by definition, a negative response to, you know, your situation. And if it's warranted, I think that burnout's the wrong word for it. I think it gets to the point of where you're talking about and kind of where we were both talking about of, of burnout being too nonspecific. And I think that if you go like, I'm feeling burnout, a lot of people don't know what to do with that. So they send you to someone, well, go talk to someone or have a pizza or do yoga. And, you know, because they're not really detailing what the problem is, then we can't come up with a solution. But if you say instead is, you know, I'm feeling resentful because I feel like I'm overworking and I see your Facebook post that you're on the golf course, you know, I'm feeling underappreciated because I feel like I've done all of these things 
and I'm really overexerting myself and I'm not seeing this in my paycheck. You know, I think that the more specific that we can get, then we can get to the solution of the, of the burnout problem by giving solutions that actually treat the actual problem. And so I think the problem with, with burnout is that no one knows what to do with it. So, you know, teaching a language of how to communicate what, you know, what exactly it is we're feeling, we'll get to why we're feeling that way, which then will give you the key to the solution. Right. And that's exactly right. And then I think that that naturally then gives us a path forward Mm -hmm. in terms of talking to the leader and saying, hey, I'm feeling this way because of X Mm -hmm. and seeing how they respond to that. And if they don't respond in a constructive way, then moving up the chain and then talking to other individuals. And that's when you really find out what is your organization made of. Yeah, I thought that was a great point because first, you know, what is the problem? And then second is how do you handle it? So I know that, you know, you and I both have have always learned through the hierarchy, but tell us, you know, what you should do to your, like, how do you manage the first step in your hierarchy? And when do you know it's time to move to the next level? Well, I think that, um, if you, if you can clearly articulate what your issue is and you, the first step is always, you have to talk to that, you know, that leader and say, Hey, you know what? I'm feeling this way because of X. And, um, if they don't acknowledge that it's a problem, then you really have no choice, but to move up the chain. And everyone has a boss. And, and at that point, you know, you can move higher up the chain and you can start talking to your boss's boss, your boss's boss, your boss's boss, and see how the administration responds to your concerns. And I think that um, if no one responds, you've got a, you've got a fundamental you know, and, and things are not going to go well. <laughs> I thought that you're, um, before we start recording, you were talking about, you know, leadership being, you know, a service oriented um, uh, focus. And I think that that speaks to when you could tell if you're talking to your leader and their interest is not service oriented, which is to hear you out and potentially provide solutions, which I would imagine would be servant. Um, that may be a recognition that you have a leader who either doesn't hear you or has no interest in serving you. And that may be a sign that this is not the leader that's going to solve your problem, that maybe you, but I also agree that you really do have to um, meet with that first you know, leadership rung in the ladder uh, because no one likes being bypassed. Good leaders, bad leaders, nobody likes being bypassed. But it's also, and this is what I teach, in um, this current group coaching, which is the everything is a negotiation, is we really do have to figure out how to talk to people. We have to figure out how to talk to anyone. Um, And so then you won't have to bypass them if you're able to at least talk to someone beforehand. And when we get out of our own way, then we can start gathering information about that person in front of us. I think most of the time when we're talking with someone in our chain, that we are so worried about what we think about ourselves or what they think about us is that we're not actually assessing what we think about them and what we think about their leadership. And we can't accurately assess if they're a good leader or if they have our best interest at heart because 
we're not focusing on them, we're focusing on us. And uh, I think that your point about maybe recognizing whether you're dealing with a servant leader is probably a good key in when you need to move to, to the next chain. Indeed, indeed. And I think, though, that you can, if you start to have that mindset, you know, is this person looking out for me or are they fundamentally a selfish, self-serving person? It's not hard to figure out once you actually ask the question and you look at behavior, you know, you know, actions speak louder than words. And I've had certainly, you know, so many leaders say, oh, I care about you. But you know what? Show me. Really. Show me. How do you treat people? One thing, like, for example, in the army, there's there's a tradition that the leader eats last. If you're in a line unit, you know, the lieutenant eats after the platoon. The company commander eats after the company. You know what? You your your subordinate should eat first. And then I, as the leader, eat last to make sure that they've got enough food. Mm -hmm. You know what? And um, that's a small example of taking care of your people. You know what, do I put their needs ahead of my needs? For example, you know, COVID was a big deal, okay? It still is a big deal. But, you know, for example, um, you know, I had, uh, I had APPs, you know, uh, PAs, NPs, you know, who, you know, worked under me. But you know what, or even medical students or residents, okay? Back in the, in the you know, very early stages of the pandemic, we were all petrified of COVID-19 as we as was appropriate. The mortality was higher, you know. If there was a patient who needed to be, you know, treated who had COVID, I treated them, I went in myself, okay? I tried to minimize the number of people who were exposed in that situation because I cared about their well-being. And as the leader, I take personal responsibility so I take the risk myself. I never ask someone to do something that I wouldn't do myself, okay? Mm -hmm. And that I think is, and not to, it sounds like I'm tooting my own horn, but the hallmark of a good leader is that, you know, you care about your people, whether it's their emotional or even in this case, physical well-being is to minimize their risk. And people knew that I cared about them. I'm sending the message there. that you're willing to do you know, exactly. you're not asking anyone that you're not willing to do. I think exactly. it's a perfect lesson. Now, I know we talked a little bit about some of the downfalls of, of that we see in medicine, especially when it comes to physicians rising as leaders, you know, and I, I think we talked, especially about proceduralists, you know, surgeons and interventional radiologists is that, you know, some of these bad behaviors are, are accepted. And tell us a little bit more about your thoughts on people who are, well, this is just how it is. And I know that they're just a jerk, but that's just who they are. And they're still a good leader and things like that. What is your take on that? Well, I think that that's a problem. Uh, you know, I think that um, just because someone is a good technician, um, does not mean that they're doing the best they can in terms of leading and influencing uh, their team. And, and frankly, what it does is it degrades the contribution that that team can make to the care of the patient. Um, I can't count the number of times a technologist has said, hey, Dr. Cho, that doesn't look right. And I said, let me check that out. And they were right. I missed something. You know what? But if you don't create a culture where people feel respected and safe to bring up 
what could be a problem, they could let you and unfortunately the patient suffer because of that. Because I, as a leader, have created culture where, you know, or if, if a, you know, if a surgeon's doing something and a tech says, hey, you know, your OR tech says, hey, doctor, might this be a problem or might you need to look at this? And you swat them away and put them down and, you know, uh, you know, and, and chastise them for bringing something up. They're not going to say anything the next time. And they could be right. And my patient would have suffered had I not paid attention. And so, um, you know, that and it it hurts morale. It hurts retention, you know, and every time you lose an experienced person that you lose that person's institutional uh, memory, their experience, uh, and you have to train someone new and you've damaged the overall organization, whether it's a, an OR team or if it's a section or a department or a hospital, every time you lose people. In, so, in the operating room, I think a lot of times, you know, a lot of people are getting more empowered because many of these sentinel events could have been identified by someone in the room and recognizing that we're as one team and building up other people does not come at the sacrifice of our authority and leadership. And, you know, I, we don't have to necessarily take on the, to the everything else. You know, we can actually build up our team and still be the leader. And I think a lot of times when we put a lot of emphasis on some of this team building, it is not to devalue the surgeon or the leader or the person who's doing the procedure, it's to acknowledge the fact that, that a team actually does make everyone perform better. And I think your point exactly too, is that people are not gonna stay where they're not valued and you're gonna lose people that will eventually erode your ability. And so raising people up will actually exponentially improve your outcomes versus, you know, putting your, I guess, the risk of authority or your authority at risk. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that a lot of, a lot of the issue that we as people and physicians, especially, um, you know, which prevents us from doing that are things like ego and insecurity. Uh, and, and we're afraid that if we relinquish or empower other people like that, like you said, that decreases our effectiveness and our power and our authority, when in fact, the opposite is true. It actually, if you empower people, they will actually elevate you. They will actually say, hey, you know what, Dr. Cho, Dr. Virtues respects me, and therefore I respect them more as a leader, and I'll go out of my way to help them, as opposed to the IR or the surgeon who abuses their people and said, well, you know what, I'm not going to lift a finger to help that person. You know what, I'll let them, you know, I'll, I'll give them enough rope to hang themselves, you know, and that, that happens too. And it's to the detriment of the team and it's to the detriment of the patient, you know, so it makes for, a, it makes for a weaker team. It makes for a weaker organization and it, it's, it's, um, it's bad leadership and it's bad for everyone. And let's say we now have this person, because I think this is a perfect time for this uh, episode to air because everyone's in new jobs and things like that. And now that we've given them a, a little bit of ability to recognize when they might be in a position where their leaders are not great. And, you know, what would be the advice that you would give to someone who now has, you know, kind of a heads up that they're seeing some of these red flags 
that you know they're feeling these feelings of of resentment and un, not appreciated and they've tried to talk to some leaders um you know what would you, you advise that person who's struggling in a job where they're feeling that this may not be this may be more of a hostile situation they were imagining mm -hmm. well um the first thing i would recommend is start documenting things um, you know, in the military, we have something called an MFR, a memorandum for record. If there's an incident, write it down, document it, write yourself an email or write yourself um, a Word document or something that has a date on it and that you can say, you know what, this happened on this day so that you have a paper trail um, and something that's written contemporaneously is far more effective and impactful and accurate than something written two weeks, four weeks, a month, six months, a year down the road. Say, you know what, what did I say? What exactly happened? So I would say you need to start documenting things. The second thing is, is that I would um, use formal administrative pathways, namely HR. Mm -hmm. So every pretty much every organization, and as, as we had discussed before, so many physicians now are employed. And if you're in an, a physician organization that employs more than a couple of people, you're going to have an HR department, okay? And HR is a great way to document what, you know, in a very codified, in a very official way, what's going on, what your concerns are. Okay, and that is the job of your HR professional is to help protect the employee. All right, now, don't be naive. Ultimately, HR works for administration, okay? But once something is written down, there are certain laws and rules and regulations that mandate, you know, that dictate what an HR department can and can't and must do. And so um, I would say, engage HR early because they can be a very valuable asset. Um, and if nothing has to go forward, if things get taken care of at the lowest level, you haven't lost anything. But if you don't engage HR early, you've lost time and you've lost documentation and you've lost, you know, official, um, you know, documentation of, of your situation. What, what do you tell the person who has never really dealt with HR before? What um, would you say that HR has to offer them? Like, what does HR actually do in a situation like this? Well, it depends on the organization, but um, HR fundamentally is supposed to advocate for the employee to administration. And they're, they're sort of an outside um but official channel that um, oversees the, the employed uh, organization. So, um, uh, you know, in terms of hiring and firing and administrative actions, evaluations, all of those things, those are HR functions. And so um, what you'll find is that, um, and what I found is, unfortunately, in civilian organizations, HR for the for the for the tech, technologist or for the hospital side is separate from the HR for the physician side. And so it's it's important um, to understand the structure of your organization 
uh, and uh, physicians are frequently siloed into their own organization. So, but where HR can help you is um, they're very organized and um, they're very official in terms of, you know, HR regulations and um, they can, um, if you complain to HR, they sort of have to um, take certain steps. And, um, you know, from a legal standpoint, they have to um, document things. And um, I have in the past made the mistake of not going to HR, trying to take, you know, do things offline. You know what? That's a mistake. Okay. If you file, you should file an HR concern or grievance early on in the process so that things can get documented, so that you protect yourself. So it sounds like you do things on your level to a certain point, but then there seems to be a tipping point when you have to stop managing yourself and go to HR. And what do you think that tipping point is? Well, I think the tipping point is um, fundamentally, if you feel that I can't tolerate this situation, personally. And it's sort of like in, in a, in a, in a personal relationship, no one's perfect. Right. And, uh, if, if you're in a relationship and something's not perfect, and if you say, you know what, I can live with it, then let it go. If something is getting to the point where I can't live with this, you know, or even I don't really want to live with this long term, then I think you should definitely move up the chain. Okay. You've gone, you know, you may, you may have concerns, you bring it up to a higher level, but I would honestly, I would go to HR fairly early because what they don't want, what makes it harder for them is well, how long have you been dealing with this? Well, I've been dealing with it for five years. Well, why'd you wait five years? You know, I can say that I've had certain situations where, you know, I put it up, put up with it for a few months or a little longer. And then, you know, you're gauging the situation, but, you know, something happens and you say, you know what, I got to go to HR, you know, and honestly, there's very little downside to going to HR. Now, I think a lot of people hear repercussions. Um, what do you think some of the repercussions we should, should be considering? Well, the good thing about going to HR is, is that by definition, there can't be repercussions. Okay, that's actually illegal. If you make an HR complaint and then there are repercussions, because you went to HR, that's illegal. And that's the great thing about HR. If you go to your boss's boss or your boss's boss and, or their boss, and then that gets back to you and they do something to you, there's a negative impact, then there's no real official documentation. But if you make an official HR complaint, then they that's sort of the tipping point to say, you know what, you can't retaliate against an employee who brings an HR complaint. 
So interesting. I think a lot of people are afraid of going to HR for retaliation, but you're saying go to HR to avoid retaliation. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, that's, that is a hundred percent true. If, and uh, yeah, that's. And when is it time to leave? So you've gone, you know, you've tried it at your ground level and you've gone to HR. You know, when is it that you're under a bad leader so much to the point where you just absolutely can't stay? Is there a way to articulate that or is this more of kind of a feeling? It's, it's a lot of a feeling, but I think that um, it comes down to when it's impacting negatively on your life and your relationships, you know, and I, and uh, I think that you, you have to take a, um, a really long look at your personal situation. Um, for the, the good news, and I hate to say about the current situation, is that it's a buyer's market, if you will, right now for physicians, okay? Um, there are a lot of open positions in a lot of places. So if you want to move, you know, it's, uh, you know, it now is a, not a bad time to be looking. Fundamentally, that's a hard question to answer, but it really depends on your personal situation. Can I move? Can I find a job? Can I, you know, you know, what can, what can happen? You know, um, am I, am I in a personal or financial or geographical situation where, uh, I'm able to move? That's, that's a hard one. That's sort of like asking, you know, when do I get a divorce? Uh, I I completely agree. And, you know, as a surgeon coach, I've been doing this for a couple of years now too. And I think the biggest advice that I give to folks is, is provide clarity for yourself. And a lot of it has to do with articulating how you feel about certain things. And what is the thought behind that? That thought offers you the solution. And if you can't find the solution and where you're at is finding a way to navigate. And a lot of times we don't even necessarily understand our biases or our thoughts or really can articulate our emotions. And this is where I think a coach comes in in, um, handy. And if you really have had a traumatic event that I highly encourage people to seek out therapists as well too. They help you get beyond event that you can't get beyond. So coaches kind of are future focused. Therapists will help you get past when you've kind of reached a point of no return. And I'm really hoping that with the information that you've provided us, that we can help people identify when they're in a bad position before they get to that point. But I do think, you know, those are some of the options that looking into all the things that in your armamentarium that can fight uh, bad leadership or being in a bad position. And then just like you mentioned, the biggest power that we have as physicians is to leave. You know, we have the skills and the knowledge and we are valuable for because of all the things that we have done over decades of our training. And so never hesitate to recognize that you have the skills and the knowledge and the power. And sometimes that is our power is by leaving. And there's nothing wrong with that. Absolutely. That's absolutely true. And uh, I think that when we we have to have the 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 strength within ourselves to recognize that I should not be disrespected. You know, I, I should not be treated this way. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, there's a fine balance between thinking too much of ourselves, but also and then thinking too little of ourselves. Um, uh, neither is healthy. 
but but um, I think that fundamentally, a lot of the time is uh, um, uh, sometimes when you look at a physician, especially, uh, and they seem so so confident, and that sometimes they're actually uh, compensating for their personal insecurities. So I think that the biggest the, the greatest way that we can combat that is to actually just believe in ourselves, not to think too highly, but so like, you know what, I am, I'm a good doctor, I'm a good person, and I'm trying to do my best. And, you know, but also to be able to look and be honest with ourselves, and that, you know, uh, stepping back and saying, you know what, could I be doing things better? Could I be doing things differently? And I think that's where a lot of leaders have a problem, is that they're insecure in they're secure in their ability to be a physician. They're insecure in their ability to be a leader, and they're unwilling to let go of that control or of that. They say, "Oh, I'm in charge. I should be in charge. You should listen to me, and you should do what I say." That's not that's not good leadership, and that really reflects um, a misunderstanding of what good leadership is and what it takes to be a good leader. And like I said, a lot of times, you know, people are like not in charge of anything, and suddenly they're in charge of a whole bunch of people and you know and, and they're feeling very insecure about what they're doing and they they've never had any practice in actually leading um and that's a very different thing it's sort of like you know and you can read books or listen to youtube videos or watch ted talks but it's sort of like you know learning to play the piano by reading a book you really just have to do it you know you have to manage people and you have to you know even like skills like listening you have to actually practice listening because human nature is to not listen because we're thinking about ourselves. So, you know, if you feel like your leader's not listening to you, they're not hearing you, they're not understanding you, it may be because they intend to, but they've never practiced actual deliberate listening, which right. is a skill. And, you know, that's one of the, you know, communication is a skill. And in order to do those things effectively, you have to actually understand them and you actually have to do them for a while till it becomes second nature. Well, but Dr. Cho, I think this is such a great, uh, lots of lessons in all of this too, you know, after your 25 years in the military, then, you know, going on further for an MBA, you know, clearly you've demonstrated your interest and uh, furthering your own leadership and to help your uh, department and all those people that you serve and advocating servant-based leadership. And I think it's a really great example for everyone. So I really appreciate you coming on the show today. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. If you find yourself under a bad leader, you need a coach. Go to bossurgery.com and click work with me.